Remember, this isn't just a search party. It's a chance to do some first-class scouting. Any questions? Lazy eye. What's your real job, sir? I'm a math teacher. Why? What grade? Eighth. You need PhD for that? Lazy eye, no. But you know what? We're actually in the middle of something here, in case you didn't notice. One of our scouts is missing, and that's a crisis. Anybody else? Redford. What if he resists? Who? Shikuski. Are we allowed to use force on him? No, you're not. This is a non-violent rescue operation. Your mission is to find him, not to hurt him under any circumstances. Am I making myself understood? Good. I'm gonna change my answer, in fact. This is my real job, Scoutmaster Troop 55. A math teacher on the side. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. I'm Mario Ponzio. And we will be talking about our 100 favorite movies. Um, Hopefully you've most listened pivotal to films. one episode already, so you know there's only 99 left now. 99 left, and we're not going to explain what's happening again if you want to get the gist of how this works. Stop being lazy. Listen <laughs> to the first fucking episode. This is a continuation. It's a list, so you have to listen to 100 before you listen to 99. And like, if you don't like... When I, like you don't like what we're talking about, you know, there's a fast forward button. Just go forward a bit. So, like we said, uh, we're on episode. This is episode 99. We're on our, episode our two. respective 99th films on our 100 favorite movies um, of all time. Um, again, and not even necessarily our favorite movies. Just to reiterate, just the 100 movies that made an impact in our viewing of film. Yeah, and perhaps we should relate this to the idea of like the pivotal film. These are our 100 most pivotal films. Yeah. It's like re-pivot on them. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Interesting. And just like every episode, we are going to start this episode with a beer. And I am holding the beer mm-hmm. up to Tom, as though he doesn't know it. As though he uh, did not as bring if I the beer if I haven't drank this to a the number of film times. studios, uh, located on the fourth floor of a very Four, swanky... 400th floor, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think, a right? Very, a very swanky tower in New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> yep. I'm not staring at a queen-size bed that no. I sleep in. I'm not staring at, at, at a, a broken screen. Oh, no. In a Yeah, that's been there for three years, by the way. I just, just like never, this? I just never fixed it. Like it's just been hanging there? Yeah. Awesome. It's, I feel like it, it says a lot about me as a person. <laughs> I'm broken. Or the landlord of this tower. He's actually a pretty okay guy. Is he listening? Is he going to listen to this? <laughs> Andrew, if you're listening, you're an okay good man. You're an all right guy. Okay. Tom, right. Tom brought this beer for us this episode. Yep. It's uh, the Hanging Hills Brewing Company, brewed out of Hartford, Connecticut. Established in 2016. It is their Metacomet Indian Pale Ale. Um, what is what is the logo here? Do we know what what that's what hill that is? I don't know. Is there a is that a chair or a dog? That's a dog. What the fuck is that dog it's doing? Dog. Goat. That's goat? Not a goat. No, if it's a goat, that'd be East Rock. It is a East Rock. <laughs> Oh man, it is a seventy-five uh, percent alcohol. Oh, seventy-five. We were getting ruined. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, oh man, this is be I a, hate decimal points too. But that's a seven point five percent. So you know what? The condensation on the on the can. Oh right, right. right. Um, so seven point five percent alcohol. Seventy-five IBUs. So I assume very hoppy. You're gonna do all the rest of the beer conversations for the rest of the. <laughs> 
for the rest I don't of the think podcast. So. No, no, I think we're gonna we're gonna go back and um, forth. But just to say a, a quick word, this is my favorite local beer that I favorite local beer. I, I love this beer really? so much. I think I've only had this so much beer once long ago. By long ago, I mean like. It would have Six to be in the ago. last. Yeah, I was gonna have. I was probably pretty drunk when I had, and I was like, "This is the beer I like. This is a good beer." Um, I'm saving my favorite local IPA for an episode. I don't know which one. So honestly, I feel like I'm gonna just bring this all the time and be like, "Oh, it's a meta comment." I feel like we haven't talked about this before, but we will have talked about it before because See, I drink it all the time. Tom doesn't realize he could just go into any <laughs> liquor store he he can find and just grab a beer and be like, "Oh, that's local." Oh wow, delicious. That. That's not bad. I really expect Mario is startled. Yeah, no, I I had had um, long-standing reservations with Hanging Hills just for the fact that why? Oh, okay. So this is this is where the the beer cunt in me comes out. <laughs> um, in the fact that when I when I see a brewery in a can at a liquor store, not a fucking package store like you East Coasters call it. Uh huh. Um, before I hear of the brewery, I automatically assume that they don't know how to brew a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I saw Hanging Hills in a liquor store before I, I'd known of the brewery. This is a very drinkable oh, IPA for 7.5%, which, it, by the way, is teetering on a double. Yeah, it's a dangerously drinkable beer. I yeah. found that out the hard way. <laughs> and we're going to both have two of them. So well, the, the only, end of this episode is going to be a fucking mess. The only beer I've ever had of theirs on tap has been their Session. Um, Which one's that? IPA. It's their Ferris. It's got uh, you know Ferris Bueller on the can. Um, it's also it's Who's a, Ferris Bueller. Is that on any of our lists? Ferris Bueller. Oh God, I is hope that not. Is that one of the hundreds? Um, um, so if you have Alan Ruck, you're automatically disqualified from something. I don't think so. I think that makes you. Oh no, I love Alan Ruck. In what's the opposite of disqualified? Qualified. Um. Yeah, we're editing all this. Whatever, now. whatever, whatever. Donald Trump is. <laughs> Extra qualified. Too qualified. <laughs> He but does. yeah, the Metacomet IPA, I think Hanging Hills does a really good job. I think a lot of, and I think we talked about this in one of the previous episodes a little bit, is that a lot of these local beers, sometimes they're kind of hit or miss. Like they're not, one. You're, you can sometimes buy a beer in a can that isn't fully developed. That's kind of, you know, half a beer. That's an idea oh, of a beer. Um, I think this is a fully realized beer. And the thing I, I appreciate is like the fact that they put their hot bill right on the goddamn cover. One that's like on the Citra, back. Citra, Centennial, Eldorado. Mm-hmm. You can't go really wrong with those hops. Um, also, Metacomet Trail. If anybody is in the East Coast and wants to hike a really a trail. fun trail. Like that has some great vistas. I mean, just like on the back, it says, you know, it's lightly floral. Um, you know, also fully citrusy. I tend to really enjoy a floral beer. That's that. You, yeah. Um, no, uh, what this yeah, tastes I, like to me is, um, I don't know if you've ever had Dogfish Head 60-minute IPA. Mm-hmm. It's a, it tastes like a, a much more complex 60-minute idea. So interestingly enough, this kind of has replaced my... Um, I used to really like the Blue Point Hoptical Illusion. Oh, um, I... And I've always Wait, found... is that Blue Point? That's Blue Point, yeah. Wow. And I've always found that to be a very floral, grassy Jack, beer. No, that's Jack Sabby. No, it's Blue Point. Blue Point. All right, so we're going to start this episode off talking about um, a movie we both just saw. Uh, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. Uh, it came out two weeks ago in limited it, release. Locally. It uh, came out locally here, so wide, week. wide, um, last weekend. Oh, really? It only came out like in limited release two weeks ago? Yeah. So it's been that. Hmm. Um, and it made a lot of money that first weekend in limited release. It made um, a fairly good is, amount of money this week. It was seventh this past weekend. Hmm? I think it might have been seventh. 
in the box. It was definitely in the top ten. It made like I think just over four million dollars. I, I, I wish I had the mojo to look this up. Oh, get out your box. Um, it stars Lakeith Sanfield. Um, it stars Tessa Thompson. Um, Terry Crews is in it. Danny Glover's in it. Stephen Yun is in it. And Army Hammer. Army Hammer. I always in love it. Army Hammer. Um, you have the voices of David Cross. It and did. Pat it Oswald did place. It se- Whitaker. It placed seventh. Seventh. Um, which I think for this movie um, is kind of unbelievable, and I'm not um, literate enough in the culture anymore to kind of express if this means something culturally. That this movie, this completely crazy off the wall movie, is oh, this placing seventh. Um, I hate I hate to use the word bonkers, but this movie's fucking bonkers. But I want to be clear, and I'm gonna tell you're gonna tell me in a second how you feel about it, and I'm really waiting to hear this because I don't know. Um, I loved this movie. It's a fucking piece of garbage. You think so? Yeah. Okay. I, I do not like it. Difference. We should have a difference of opinion, oh, yeah. like sound. Do you, do you like remember, an alarm so in episode something. in episode zero, I was startled by Tom's computer's saved file Bing sound, and I feel this is the appropriate time to insert Bing. that saved Bing sound. Um, but I think it's a you tell me why I, it's a piece of garbage. Oh, I, I think you should tell me why it's great. Well, I'm because I, I, I think it's a piece of garbage that's really well done, but ultimately sucks. Mm. Okay, I'm going to tell you I think why we start I love with a positive. Let's do a compliment. I'm not here. I'm not even sure if I can speak to this to the quality of it as a movie. I it speaks to what I want. What I and personally I it, want out of a and movie. And I would say has has the has speaking to the quality of the movie. I think it's a really well done movie. Yeah. Um I think just plot-wise it, it's a failure. Oh, see that's the thing. And I what I'm responding to is not even not even plot and I've read some criticism that kind of that kind of takes the task for focusing on the idea of um, telemarketing. You know, we're supposed to be beyond telemarketing. Telemarketing is an old idea. Blah blah blah. Um, I don't think any of that stuff matters. No, I think not at it all. is. If it's a mess, it is a beautiful, alive mess oh, of a movie. Absolutely, and um, that's really all I want out of a movie these days is for a movie to feel alive. And to be just putting everything for a director to be putting everything he or she has got into a movie. Um, the movie, it just, I think, I feel like I say that movies crackle a lot. This movie crackles, it sparkles, it shimmers, it does all of those adjectives all at the same time. And if it's a, if it's a failure of, science fiction if it's a failure of plot if it's a failure of acting i want more movies to fail like this all the time and and i would agree the fact that i think it's a garbage in the sense of i i look at a lot of movies in the sense uh, of one lens i i i boots this is boots riley's feature debut i yeah. believe yeah um in the same way that the following nolan's first movie Pi, Arnofsky's first movie, are mm-hmm. both garbage to me. But they do a lot. And Boots Riley does a lot here. Yeah. I mean, the I think world Pi building... is a fair, uh, is a fair, a fair comparison. comparison. I, mean, I would yeah. agree. I would agree. Um, 
that it's brought following for for the sense of of following this as much world building, but it sets a it sets a tone it, well, it sets a tone that I think Boots Riley might be establishing. Mm. Um, in terms of the world building of this movie, it's fucking immaculate. World building, yeah, yeah. The world building is like the overall arching universe you create in this film is tremendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, I think for for me, strangely enough, the, the most similar comparison. Is another Terry Crews film in terms of world building? Idiocracy. Idiocracy, yeah. but Idiocracy does it badly. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Idiocracy. It's it's a fun movie, but yeah. Idiocracy is done by Mike Judge, who doesn't have as much of a grasp on on world building, and and this is very much an Idiocracy sort of world. We we, we see the fact that almost everyone's impoverished, but it doesn't even like mention that. It's it's brought up in the fact that you you travel through streets in Oakland where everyone white black asian is living in tent cities yep. they don't settle on that even the people who have some sort of power in uh the regal view company um you know the managers of the regal view company that one the manager i thought for a second was steven root by the way i kind of like yeah, the yeah, best yeah. steven root impersonation i've ever seen um don't have any power they're, they're still all all low, also impoverished well that guy i mean that one guy has tattoos all over his that neck clifton collins jr he's got t- <laughs> He's got tattoos on his face. Is, know, is he, that not is that not true? By the way, those two actors, like one, I thought was Stephen Root, and I thought that was Clifton Collins. They Jr. both look like the other people, and I think yeah. that's probably I don't, is that like it almost feels purposeful. I don't know. Well, I think I heard um, Boots Riley on WTF. I always knew a lot of WTF. In case I'm going to mention it a lot. I don't um, even know what that is. It's Mark Maron. Yeah, um, he I was talking about the fact that like one of the reasons that they shot in Oakland um, was because it was an Oakland movie, but also because he knew that he could shoot in a lot of places for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he probably had people in his head that he could get that he wanted to cast like I want this guy to look like this I want this guy to kind of be like this and he probably cast the cheapest equivalents that he could to those people but I also think that those ca- those actors after establishing themselves as kind of lookalikes or stand-ins for more accomplished actors and I think that's actually worked really well Michael X. Summers and Robert Longstreet might be those those two before i mean i can't I say know. off the top of my head um yeah no everything in terms of the world building works well in this movie i mean it's it's definitely an alternate universe sort of oakland um you know all the critical reviews have brought up the fact that it's like an alternate universe world but this movie never kind of like revels in that it doesn't hang out in an alternate universe no, no it's just it's it's our universe just weird yeah it's just um, like a little different yeah I mean, the, the but best. Consider the idea too. I mean, from a, a cultural standpoint, consider the idea that it is, it's um, a, and the New York Times just did an article about how Oakland's kind of becoming a. Yeah, I read. Uh, I saw that article. Yeah, coming um, the the hodgepodge of film to, this year. Right, and the idea that from on the East Coast here, you know, where I'm from. Um, and Oakland, I actually am from near Oakland. I'm right. from Reno, so I grew up. Near Oakland the for me is a different is a different place it's the place next to san francisco and it's like the not for me as a white male it's the place next to berkeley <laughs> <laughs> but like you just kind of consider it as so san francisco has the golden gate bridge and oakland has you know the, the whatever Coliseum. that whatever the Coliseum. That, it has the Coliseum. whatever that gray metal bridge is well, that the bay bridge the bay Come bridge on. But I'm saying it's like it's the, a big bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's orange and it's you know so famous. And then there's the Bay Bridge, which, which is, has an island in the middle of its right, ten mile expanse. Exactly. It's just kind of you know that's Oakland, and I think part of the 
But does it? I think I think the big point is: does it matter that it's in Oakland? Well, I think it's it it helps to establish the alternate reality in the sense that it's probably a place that not a lot of people have been before. Exactly, it's a place that not a lot of people know intimately. And and he's establishing that I know this place intimately. These people know this place intimately. This, um, you know, um, and and it was it was like it was you know in in the past few years it's been a big part of the Occupy movement. Oakland, the Occupy Mm -hmm. Oakland movement is huge, and this movie at its core is definitely a labor movie. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, like there, there's some discussion of race relations and whatnot within the film, but I don't think that at its, at its center is, is definitely a film about labor and well, I think labor one of the relations. Pop- and Oakland, you know, outside of, outside of the Occupy New York movement, I'd say Oakland was the center of that, that conversation. Okay. And, you know, knowing the timeline in which independent films take to come from conceptualization to, actual production i'd say like this is probably a movie that was that was made during the the heat of that that was that was at least i well, think it was just i think it was just made last year but was it's it mode i think it was, like, it's it, made post trump but it was written but yeah much, written been, written during he was writing it for a long time yeah. yeah so it was originally published mcsweeney's published a version of it the screenplay oh, in 2014 started. okay um and then it just kind of went that started as a short story or did it no it started as a screenplay he was um he was came out of the sundance workshops um you know, working on this mm. this movie, and then it ended up in Dave Eggers' hands, and Dave Eggers put it out on McSweeney's the in 2014. Yeah, it was a long time. I think one of the reasons is probably why, if I'm responding to it as, um, a f- and we are responding to it as a, as a work, a fully realized work where the universe is is, is fully realized and um, feels lived in and real, um, as opposed to one of the other movies we're going to talk about leader of the podcast according to tom according to tom um it's because he spent so much time on it but also because it's he has such an intimate knowledge of who these people are and, yeah and has, and, has a lot of this world and i think a thing that's important too is is it has so many connections to the real world um that this fictionalized world works um has recompared it to idiocracy idiocracy has you know a famous scene of the like 10 time oscar-winning film ask the movie <laughs> Um, you know, just 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 an ass farting for two hours or so. I, I've seen it <laughs> years ago, but compare that to to this movie. The the, the one hundred and fifty million viewers watching, like, let us beat the shit out of you. I, I believe around about the title. Yeah, yeah just yeah. just people getting the shit kicked out of them. Um, I just had the shit kicked out of me or something. Yeah, like that, yeah. Um, you know, Idiocracy leans into this world, whereas Sorry to Bother You succeeds in the fact that it just gives you touches of this world but doesn't so much kind of like doesn't so revel in it it just it just says that this is this is what's what is popular and that, and that works yeah well, that so works what, it doesn't lean so much into its its concept so its premise what doesn't work for you then what doesn't work for me is is a lot of the plot jumps mm-hmm. um i mean I, I guess we should talk about the main the main the main story of the main the main plot read we probably yep. should do this for a movie that, that doesn't have a lot of viewership. So um, Lakeith uh, Stanfield's cash is, you know, an impoverished um, 20-something. He has a fiancé in Detroit who's a who's a struggling artist, Tessa Thompson. And uh, he's just looking for a job um, to pay off his uncle. He is four months behind in rent, so he finds his telemarketing job. Um, he's struggling at first, and he 
eventually realizes that he has a knack for it using his white voice in particular, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like this, this voice that says like the things I, it's, it's a voice that says like, I have everything I need and I'm selling this kind of like you, you, you want it. Well, I um, think, and then, just to interrupt, I think that's an interesting um, aspect of the movie, which I think gets underplayed is that I think Danny Glover's character is not just saying in Boots Riley is not just saying, Oh, Use a white voice. People trust a white person. Oh no! It's all the really detailed, subtle things that a white voice represents. Yeah, and, and, um, and Danny which Glover's... is really, I think, really um, smart. Yeah, like, Danny Glover overly smart. Danny Glover specifically says you're not using a white. Vo- you're you know, um, Cash says that you know I've been told I have a white voice, um, and you know we, me and Tom say this is white men interpreting a a, a film with with some significant race relation issues. Um, he says, you know, Dan Glover's character says, you know, yeah, you have a white voice, but you're not talking like a white person in the sense of you're not saying this from a position of privilege. You're not saying this from a position where you have everything you need and you're just kind of selling it has kind of like, um, a favor mm-hmm. to somebody else. Um, and that's, that's, that is, that is the success of the film is it kind of like, that's why I feel it's more of kind of like a labor film instead of like a race relations. Film I think so too. In, in in the sense that it is definitely selling the fact that like everyone's in this fight together. There's there's black, white, Asian. I mean, there, there's all three of those races are really significantly kind of demonstrated. Um, the one who throws the the coke bottle, coke can, is is a white woman. Uh, Steve Young's character. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what the hell's his name? His name is Squash. Squeeze. 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 You know, is an Asian male. Um, you know, all this, all the, all these people are kind of like repressed underneath the, the capitalist system. I think it's key that this. I don't think it's a race movie. Um, no, it's it's this maybe film Boots Riley might argue it's a race movie. There is there is definitely elements of this stuff movie that it. are a hundred percent race there, related. But I think as part of the success of the world building is that everyone's kind of aware. He doesn't have to try to establish what the nature of race relations are in this world. It no. just is it it is what it is and not as from an acceptance standpoint, but from a standpoint that everybody in the movie fully realizes what their place is. So the movie doesn't have to waste a bunch of time trying to establish that oh look, all the managers are white. Steve Lift is white. Steve Lift plays by Army Hammer, who's Masterfully the played by Army oh, fantastically played by Army Hammer, who's who's the CEO of Worry, Worry Free. Free. Um which is a kind of like indentured, voluntary indentured servitude um, that's supposed to, he believes, is fixing um, the economy and fixing unemployment and fixing, you know, the world, all, all, essentially. All the, all the misers of the world. And, um, and I think this film masterfully, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm giving this movie high praise for something I ultimately didn't like. This movie masterfully says that it is a, a movie ultimately about haves versus have-nots in that those establishing shots show white black asian people struggling mm-hmm. um there, there's a there's a lingering shot when he when cash is going to pick up um detroit's character where it shows a, a one of the white men kind of like underneath this like tent mm-hmm. you know like, like and like it, it really focuses heavily in like various different people there but it's saying that it, it this isn't a race issue and it's not to say that this movie doesn't focus on race issues because there's a scene near the end at the party at Steve Lift's house that 100% sure. says what's expected of black men. Yep. Um, and Boots Riley, I think, is smart enough to lead into that, to say, like, that there is various different 
stratuses of humans. Like, like you know, definitely 100% um, the people who are in charge of the Regal View lower class are all white. Um, the the two managers and um, the debauchery, as I <laughs> yeah. call her, Diana, Diana debauchery. Uh, not debauchery. Um, they're all they're all white characters. Like they are in charge of a lot of minority characters, um, but they are still kind of like stratified in in the fact that they are the lower class in this in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, so this movie ultimately to me is 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 dealing with with labor issues and dealing with with class structure. And what's interesting is 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 like that breaking free in the sense of the class structure of. Um, you know, they're, they're the main point of the film is is squeeze. You know, organizing a, a labor revolt, uh-huh. um, and Cash's like struggle with with breaking the line there, and and that's where the film starts to lose me. Um, when he breaks the line the first time, no, I think I think the film loses me near its end where he decides to come back to the line. Uh huh. I there's 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 a very telegraphed um, moment in the film of him constantly having a picture of his father um sitting next to a nice kind of like muscle car yeah yeah and um, and it moves around though and reacts it, to it what moves he's reacts been doing. reacts to what he's yeah. doing and like there's there's moments of horror and and there's moments of uh of disgust and eventually cash makes you know cash the the, the main goal of all the people who are at the very bottom rung of the labor is to become what is a um, premium sort of telemarketer. Power caller. A power caller. Um, you know, so there's a labor revolt, but Cash is great at his job. Cash is great at selling the the American dream. Yep. And he becomes a power caller. And they keep showing this image of his father being kind of disgraced, showing his father he being becomes, disappointed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disappointed is a good word. And there's, there's a, a fucking fantastic scene um after the Michelle Gondry-esque evolution of him going yeah. from living in the garage to having his own apartment mm-hmm. where him and Detroit are sitting in the bed and they have that great argument between uh, Tessa Thompson and Lakeith Stanfield. But the blankets. Um, but the blankets, which is just the best scene in the movie it's a good to scene. me. Um, and, and from there, you kind of see that the, the shift where he goes to the party. Um, Cash goes to the party and then there's there's... The, the the pretty significant turn in the film to the very absurd which we won't yeah we won't talk about um we usually don't care about spoilers but this is definitely a movie where the spoiler plays a you want to be role. yeah you yeah. don't want it to be spoiled um and he turns towards basically the light side yeah and that where it feels for me i don't feel it's earned that I, him turning back see i'm i'm of another opinion of it and i looked at it from a very I don't want to lean too heavily into do the right thing here. A but, movie I, I saw only once right. years ago. But I think it kind of has the same has the same kind of sentiment. He's not unaware of what his crossing the picket line is costing him. Yeah. He wishes that it wasn't the case, but he's not unaware of it. It's also significant in the sense that his reasons for crossing the picket line are um, honorable. Um, you know, he wants to pay his uncle back for the back rent he owes. His uncle's, even with the back rent, his uncle might lose his house. His uncle played by Terry Crews. Um, oh, it's always house. fun. Terry Crews is, once again, just doing Terry Crews' work in this. He live, yeah. He lives in his uncle's garage. Um, 
which even though he's outfitted it as his apartment, you know, still has a door that can just that come up function, and, you know, and he's trying to have sex with his girlfriend. Um, it takes, which, in, uh, you know, I would love to have someone here that would speak to like, you know, deeper labor issues and you and me are going to kind of grapple with it. Maybe in some instances takes something like the twist in this movie for someone to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And even after the twist, there's still a moment where, um, you know, the white CEO or Army Hammer Steve Lift makes him an offer that it almost seems like he's not going to refuse, regardless of what it's going to cost him, because of 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 the um, what it would what it would bring him. Yeah, like the costs almost balance each other out. But and, I, and I feel like from that standpoint, if you look at it from like a larger social picture, I feel like in that case, it's very earned in the sense that he's willing to do a lot of this stuff for very good reasons until the good reasons get canceled out by how bad the bad reasons are. And I agree. And that's that's where it doesn't work for me. And that's where like it's it's I, I, I say it's a piece of shit in, in the loosest sense. In, in the fact that I don't think the story works. I, it's a really well-crafted movie. Because really if you well don't think the story it. works, and that's then, kind of what we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that it. later. Yeah, exactly. You either buy it or you, you don't, don't buy and it. And I don't don't buy it. I, I, Valid. I love the world that's created. Yep. But, um, you know, every everything's building up to Cash becoming a power caller. He becomes a power caller, and he excels at that. He excels at that to such a level where the worry-free CEO and Steve Lift says, I want you on my team. There's that nice turn. And at this point, he's he's turned his back on Squeeze. He's turned his back on Detroit. He's turned his back on his best friends for his life. And, um, you know, he's crossed the picket line. He's had he's become an internet sensation and having a can thrown in his yeah. face. The, 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 I, which I, I believe will become a really famous poster art of, you know, just him, Lakeith Stanfield with, with the head bandage. Head, yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's a scene after kind of like the reveal which we keep mentioning, but we can't talk about. Where just see the he, movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just fucking see the movie. I mean, I don't love it, but it is something you, to experience. You should see it. Um, where Detroit says to him, it took something, like, in a roundabout way, it took something selfish for you to see the light. And sure. this is why we can't be together. And then everything else after that, like, that's a great moment to me. Like, that when she says, like, listen, you're still, you know, you're still, he's, he's motivated from the very beginning by having a purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he talks about the sun blotting out life sure. and says like, what mark am I going to leave? And he leaves, he creates that mark by becoming like the most exceptional telemarketer ever. Mm-hmm. But he, it, that's a bad person. Like, you realize that yeah, telemarketing yeah, yeah. Is, is slave labor, is, is armaments. Well, that's a, the um, fact that he knows, I, I think the one criticism I would have that links up to what you're saying is that he knows what he's selling and he still decides to sell it and he sells it extremely well extremely well yeah. and and then detroit has that argument about like they so so they're they're engaged you know they're a loving couple he crosses the picket line he keeps crossing the picket line after she gives an ultimatum they break up they have that hookup together again mm-hmm. and then she says i can't do this anymore because ultimately you're doing this for selfish reasons and then he keeps doing it for selfish reasons yeah and i was expecting another turnaround at the end of the movie yeah but you don't you just kind of he just kind of 
but it's it's it, it he doubles comes, down on that it idea. becomes it comes paint by numbers to me and that's that's what hurts the film is for a movie that so meticulously creates its world for a movie that 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 so takes all the character interactions that takes side plots um you know, you know, the great great example being Detroit's art exhibit, mm-hmm. which I think she, was a fantastic scene. Well, no, it's it's a lovely, it's wonderful, a fucking scene. fantastic yeah. scene where she's doing that um, stick to the script yep. of just repeating this line from this black exploitation film while getting thrown with sheep's bullet blood shells and, bullets, and sheep's yeah. blood and, and cell phones and just like echoing what what Cash is doing to his own life after doing all that but, and trying to like being a hallmark like listen you're you're living your life wrong and I'm trying to get you to have this realization and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He never has that realization. The only realization he has is when it starts affecting him. And from the beginning of the movie, well, I think so. I mean, that's kind of where I would go to. I would point again to do the right thing is that he thinks that he's representing. I get the impression that the film is trying to say that Cash thinks he's representing not just him, but like African Americans or the lower class. Even if you want to include Squeeze and all the other people that are on the picket line, yeah, all the other, I would people, say more, other more everyone else. Um, he thinks by doing what he's doing, he's he is representing a whole group of people. So where Detroit is making her Africa, her um, you know sculptures of Africa, and you know thinks that she's doing it, and she you know has that pretty good speech when they're on the couch talking about it um, about why she feels compelled, like why Africa, and then I think he actually asks her like why Africa. Um, I think he thinks he's doing it for similar reasons, but he's his reasons aren't as well thought out yeah maybe or maybe they're not as noble as her reasons are i don't know if we're meant to read a moral um you know right and wrong in either of those things like which one's bet you know is this better than this um he thinks he's doing the same thing that she's doing and he doesn't realize he's wrong until the worst possible thing that could possibly happen and that's that's is revealed, the you know, is and to me, it's not even is, like he's. It's gonna happen. It has already happened. Yeah. So the worst possible thing has to be thrown in his face, and for him to kind of like have time to reconcile it, and then oh, okay, now I can make X, Y, and Z decision. And that's why the story fails to me. That's where I like, I, I didn't come away from this film liking it at all. Mm-hmm. Is the fact that, you know, the story beats follows that Detroit presents his ultimatum of. You know, it's fine that you're now crossing the picket line, that you're now, you know, willing to stand up for labor rights, but you're doing it for selfish reasons. And it just doubles down on that. There's there's no ever, t- it feels like it, it says that Cash overcomes that, that he does end the film having a more altruistic view. Mm-hmm. Of, of the labor issue and of, of the people around them, but I, I don't feel that's ever earned. Well, where, think, where does that come? I don't, well, I don't I think, see that I think ever it comes happening. from the sense that he knew it all along, but he made this choice to do this, which is, again, uh, it's the third time I mentioned do the right thing, which is exactly what's happening in do the right thing, and is that Mookie knows what is... Mookie knows what he's supposed to do from both sides, from the Sal's Pizzeria side to the you know, people on the block side mm. and he makes a choice to throw the garbage can through the window. Yeah. And I think it's, they always, I think that's the other thing that kind of his thinking about, um, like the end of the world and like the sun, you know, kind of 
like we're what, gonna die. What, we're what gonna will die. We, what will we is be? that he's smarter than just a telemarketer, and that's kind of what, no, exactly. And that's you know what, what, that's what so Steve Lift picks up is the fact that like he's he, a he's a thinker. He's not just like he's this, a motivator. Right. He's, he's a he's a he brings people together. And I that's mean, what his first manager squeeze, says is squeeze like, has nothing. Squeeze, you get the idea. Has done this before. I mean, squeeze he's openly done it a lot mentions of times. he yeah, has yeah. done it before, but he doesn't begin that discussion until he sees a catalyst right and, and but cash I, is that and catalyst. I, I find the complication in cash's cash's decision making um fairly thrilling um i understand how it, from a narrative standpoint that it might be vaguely frustrating mm. that he's just kind of like well i'll do this but now now i'm gonna do this yeah and i want you all to congratulate me for now doing this and i wonder sometimes too if that's the reason that um, Boots Riley keeps hammering home, like, um, you know, when the kids come by in the Halloween costumes with the can in yeah. their afros. Like, if he's, if, if there's a continued kind of humiliation, rehumiliation of that idea to kind of continually make sure we all understand that he's in this place. Um, I don't know if that's necessary. No, I, I think he, that's, I think that's a first time filmmaker kind of like reiterating points. Yeah, you don't. It's you. You don't have to do that stuff. But um, yeah, I find that I find um the conflict between him of of or in the conflict in the in the world that he's presented in what's actually right and what's actually wrong, mm-hmm. um, and who's the judge of what's right and wrong. You know, clearly he thought that the hor- that the twist thing. He thought the twist the was horrors wrong. of it, yeah, yeah, was wrong, and the culture decided that they didn't give a shit. Oh, exactly, and that that's a that's an amazingly done scene, right? Like they they do this um, they do this montage of him talking about what he's seen, and it kind of like like I, I sat there, I had this very Trumpian. I actually had to piss really bad at that part. And I was like, uh. oh, this is the end, and like it's a fine ending, and it didn't end there. And I was like, that's that was clever, right? And that's why, like, and maybe that's why I feel so viscerally about this film, and like, I feel so, uh, like, I have such negative reactions to a movie I should feel like is well done, but mm-hmm. ultimately didn't work so well to me. Is that it works really well when it needs to, but it just misses the mark. But and I, I think that's kind of a that could be a running theme of a lot of movies that didn't make our top one hundred list. Is that there was movies that we really wanted something from mm-hmm. very specifically, and for whatever. Re- reason it didn't follow through with what we thought it was going to give us. And I, I would say... And that's just a, that's just a personal thing. I, I, think, I, think, I think you and me both agree that anyone that's listening to this that has... If it's playing in your area, you should go fucking see it. Oh, no. Because this there's is, not this a is more best, interesting movie you're going to see this is the, right uh, now. This is the best Michelle Gondry movie ever. 100%. Like, if you like Michelle Gondry... I don't know about that. One thing. I don't think we can. Can you actually say that? What? This is the best Michelle Gondry movie? You don't have any Michelle Gondry movies on your list? Uh, do I? No. Okay. Do you? Yeah. Oh, right. You have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, this is. I'm not a Michelle Gondry Well, he guy. makes fun of that in the movie. Well, no, there, there's a great scene where um, Steve Lift shows a video to yeah. him by Michelle Gondry. Yeah. Um, but there, the transformation, like, like, as a filmmaker. Boots Riley's fucking on He's fire. Really, really good. And I actually like that his... transformation scene. That the, so there's there's a scene where um, Cash is transforming himself from like a super impoverished yeah. ne'er do well to somebody who's actually has a place in life. He feels and 
they they show a, a really old tube TV and it gets cut in half and like in a very kind and of stop motion, yeah, yeah. like grows into a, a nice like you know but LED t- television. That scene's just. But you could even point to one stuff, of the prettiest scenes I've seen in recent memory. And you could even point to stuff like Detroit's earrings mm-hmm. is a very Michel Gondry type of affect. That's something he would do. But I think it's interesting that he brings attention to it. Boots Riley brings attention to it. Michelle Gondry would just make it part of his, like, the overall scope of what he's trying oh, to no. do. Oh, no, other, other filmmakers who we'll be like, talking about later in this episode will do. Like, Boots Riley it's has, a, has a frame of scope. He, he knows what he's doing. I don't feel the story works, but everything else works. I think there's something tar- like vaguely early Tarantino-esque oh, in this movie. Oh, no, we're not going to start doing this in the podcast. No, no, no. We're going to start saying Tarantino and everything? No, no, from a nerd standpoint, in the sense that there's a lot of... There's a lot of consumption that's coming out in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of this film, is Tarantino. There's a lot of film watching and culture consuming that's kind of being dumped all at one time in this one movie. Oh no, this is this is leagues above Reservoir, like like, oh, no, like no, no, Reservoir just, Dogs in terms of I just direction. Mean, I, sure, of course. I mean. I, I mean, I hate, I hate, I hate, I just I'm hate not using a Reservoir Dogs guy, but I hate using the word Tarantino-esque th- in the sense I'm of anything. I'm thinking a Tarantino-esque, not in the sense of like how he directs a movie or whatever, but in terms of like sucking up culture, synthesizing it, and pushing it back in your face. I feel like I don't, this- think, that, I don't think that's what happens here. I mean, I don't like this movie, but I think Boots Riley 100% doesn't do that. I think, I think he 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 has taken in what he's seen around him, but he. Like even though things are presented in a Michelle Gondry way, but you don't like, think there's a Kill Bill aspect to no, some of this stuff? God, no. I think I think everything is has its own unique visual style and unique, like um, unique storytelling hmm. style. Honestly. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think it's an. I, I I think I think you're right. I don't think it's an. I, I think a lot of the, the stuff that Tarantino does is homage. Also, based. it's like like the, the 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 sound composition of this too. Hmm. Like there, there are so many visual strikes that are moved by the music, too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, are, which are which you don't That's see fair. a lot of. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just think I'm thinking in terms. Um, I think of, um, like I said, uh, just the amount of stuff. That's kind of pushed onto oh, the screen 100%. at one time. That's obviously come from like consuming X and and watching Y and and kind of how all this stuff plays into how this first movie comes out. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely he's definitely a filmmaker. You're you're seeing. That was my finger. Okay, you're seeing a lot of of stuff being thrown at a wall, seeing what fits, and and a lot of it does work to me. Um, that's just the story doesn't. Yeah. All right. Go see um, Sorry to Bother You, Boots Riley. All right. So we're back. Um, Let's go to the list. So this is uh, my number 99 movie. Um, It is Pixar's Ratatouille. Written directed by Brad Bird. 2007. Um, starring, I guess if you want, uh, Patton Oswald as the voice of Remy the Rat, Ian Holm as the evil Chef Skinner, um, who doesn't at all sound like Ian Holm. In that. Well, that's kind of something I wanted to get to. That's one of the reasons I like this movie so much is that a lot of the um, voice acting is very unassuming. I think the only one, the only voice actor who really makes sense 
from I can't imagine who else would do the voice is Peter O'Toole. No, Brian Dennehy. Really? As the the, the father rat. You know, I mean, of course, Brian Dennehy is going to be the bossy, <laughs> kind of in charge father rat. See, um, hearing hearing Peter O'Toole's Anton ego, I can't imagine anybody else. But that's I think that speaks to the, the larger point of why this movie's on my list. So, the movie is um, Remy. He and his family live in a rat colony in rural France um, in an old lady's apartment. And Remy has developed a very refined palate and doesn't want to eat garbage. garbage. Like everyone else. He, the colony is discovered. He, Bye. they flee. Just, just, just to not cut into your plot description. That grandmother is obsessed with killing rats. Sure. She's got a... Which is which is a fun scene, like that, that entire scene. Right well, yeah, the old lady wielding a shotgun with well, a gas just, mask on is amusing. Like, not only does she destroy her house, but she then gets a sniper rifle of some sort to then chase them as they're fleeing. Yeah, her house. It's always a fun scene um, for me. This movie's punctuated by a lot of really good set pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think this is kind of one of the first Pixar movies um, that had really exceptional visual that 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 works that still brad, works yeah, you know no. um brad, all these brad years Bird's, later 11 brad years Bird's later first two like brad bird you know he would later he would earlier in 2004 do the incredibles a movie that's just absolutely 100 percent set pieces and ratatouille a movie that's much more reserved but i would argue that the incredibles especially with incredibles 2 being just released that 2004 incredibles doesn't hold up to 2018 incredibles whereas from a visual standpoint where the the characters are very blocky, they're I'm do, very. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a lot of head holding right now. But that's true. Just watch the movies. They're very blocky. They're very early PlayStation-y. Um, they're not, you know, they're not Toy Story one. Oh no, I'd agree. But I'd agree they're, they're also not, not Ratatouille. There's oh. a lot of stuff that they do in Ratatouille. They had perfected a lot of things by the time they did Ratatouille. Oh, they no, had I'd, perfected water by argue, the time they did Ratatouille. I don't know if they perfected water, but I would argue that Ratatouille has. Maybe the best color palette of any Pixar well, so, film but movie I, ever. Between ever? so between two thousand four and two thousand seven, they did a lot of work, hmm. and it, so to the point where Ratatouille still. What, what comes in between Incredibles and Ratatouille in Pixar's? I, I will know. be looking. Cars, Cars, the first Cars movie. I don't know. Um, as M- Mario looks that up, I will continue with plot description. Remy ends up in. Uh, the middle of Paris, France. He is a big fan of uh, Gusto, the chef, who he um, encounters on the TV in the lady's house where the colony lives in uh, Gusto's cookbooks. Um, he ends up at his restaurant, of course, um, and then he ends up in the hat of Linguini, um, a kid who has no cooking experience, who he teaches, who he uses as a puppet. Yeah, to do his to do some serious cooking, um, and that's really kind of the plot of this movie. It's there's a, a subplot where Linguini is Gusto's heir. Gusto is dead, um, and the evil Chef Skinner doesn't want to you know give up control of the of the brand Gusto because he's got a lot of plans for it. This is definitely a movie where the where the subplots aren't are not important. No, the subplots are kind of. Uh, Almost also, kind of get in the way. Also, of, literally the only film in between The Incredibles in 2004 and Ratatouille in 2007 is unfortunately 
the garbage cars. Yeah. So there you go. And cars was supposed to be a big step forward, though, visually. Which it is, but cars is. But cars is terrible. Basically. This is the last time we're going to mention cars on this podcast. Yeah, I know. So. It better be. Um, why is. I'm writing down don't mention cars. <laughs> why is Ratatouille on my list? Ratatouille is on my list for the same reason. One of the same reasons that Eyes Wide Shut is on my list and a lot of movies are on my list is that it's just a quiet movie. It's not hysterical. It is a movie where the climax of the movie is a food critic eating food. Oh, no, absolutely. And um, it is. And I remember watching this and I saw it in the theater. Um, I believe I saw it with Nicolette, um, my wife, for anyone who's, you know, doesn't know my exact life. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to our women listeners. Tom is, Tom is married. Well taken. I'm also Take married. Let's just pretend. I'm just gonna I'm gonna adopt that character now. <laughs> Mario's also married. It'd be funny if your voice changed like Married Mario or Married Mario. Married Mario? Married Mario was um like a totally different person. You had different yeah. opinions on everything. Um, We're gonna pretend I'm married and not playing Fortnite until two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> eating bacon cheeses. It's only one year, my friend. I'm usually eating like carrots. <laughs> bacon carrots um, <laughs> to get back on point but yeah um we're keeping all that in if you want um i remember thinking that it was kind of unbelievable that this is what this movie was this was a movie about literally about cooking and about how Life can still surprise you when you think there's no more surprises. No, I I, I agree. I, I I rewatched this movie a few nights ago, and I remember when I first saw Ratatouille, I fucking adored it. Yeah, oh, it's, um, um, it's just. But I couldn't remember why, and I rewatched it, and I still don't remember why. Mm-hmm. And I sat there for a while, and I was like, "Oh right," because it it makes me feel calm. It's like it's the, a calming effect. It's the opposite of like almost every other animated movie that's not made made by Miyazaki. Yeah, I know, it's exactly. Like especially a movie that's attached to Disney, um it's completely unhysterical and it's Well, there, there's there's definitely funny scenes and sure. there's definitely like those scenes of like raised hysterics for for Disney. But even but... like when there's a car chase, the car chase lasts for like you know, well, no, I don't, even mean, I don't even mean the car chase. I mean, like, the scene where he's frantically trying to cook early on. Sure, sure, sure. And, you know, Remy doesn't, doesn't he, have full control of over the body. But think about that. Like, the tension comes from the fact that Remy decided to stop and smell something. Oh, exactly. And then it gets even more tense when he decides to throw a bunch of spices into his soup. And what, what makes this movie great is, is the fact that Pixar around this time... I mean, Finding Nemo doesn't, but... I mean, I guess Finding Nemo does, but, but a lot of the movies around this time... Incredibles, Wally. Even Which I, I love. Have, I love Wally. Oh, God. Wally's fucking bad. I'm not... I'm not, not denigrating Wally or Wally no, 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 Incredibles. No, yeah. um, but they have, they have very high stakes, and Ratatouille's stakes are really, really insignificant. Yeah. At worst, Skinner finds out that a rat named Remy is, lingui- is controlling Linguini, well, and he gets kicked out of a restaurant. The movie- it doesn't matter. At the end of the movie, they the find hanging. out they find out that the, there are rats, yeah. and they close the restaurant down. So it's not even like they're trying to keep. It's not even like they spend the movie trying to keep the rats from people. And, and he even you know admits it. Like obviously he was gonna. We had to let him out. 
the rats didn't like eat his flesh and kill him. Like, so they let the health inspector out, and he closes the restaurant down. So it's it exists in this kind of weird Man, place. Could, could you imagine that movie though? <laughs> Where the rats just feast on the health inspector. That's that's a David Cronenberg movie. That's a Mario Ponzi. And you see the rats going in and out. That's that's. that's I mean, they make it, the they, body they, they make it like a really good like. Like new menu item, like Remy smells the inspector and goes like. Well, that's oh. where that's the end of the movie, where he just pulls chunks out of the inspector and serves it to Ego. Like he smells like he smells a bit of the kidney. He's like no, and he smells like a little bit near the liver, and he's like, "This is it, this is it, this is the prize piece." Um, none of that happens, which, which I I'm glad. I'm really I'm happy. Glad to, I'm if that glad happened, that if that had happened, I would have probably. Had a lot of questions when Rogue Nation came out, but yeah. <laughs> but they even they yeah they they take that out of the hands of anyone who wants to criticize it. Like yeah, we acknowledge that there's rats. Yeah. The people know that there's rats, and there's ra- there's repercussions there's for the rats exactly. Um, but then it ends on this great note, you know, where they've got this dual restaurant. There's the rat restaurant. There's the people restaurant, and egos eating at it. And they you know, there's the great you know we talked about walk-ins great closing monologue in seven psychopaths the other night i mean well, I, I feel like there's an equally great closing monologue in ego's review i um i, I literally written. i literally wrote in my notes that this entire movie is building to that peter o2 monologue well, the world is often unkind to new talent new creations the new needs friends last night i experienced something new an extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. Think and about that monologue Mario. Is fucking fantastic. Think about that in 2007, in from whenever to whenever, a children's movie. It I mean, ultimately, builds ultimately, to a a, 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 a a food critic's review of a restaurant. Ultimately, I mean, 2000. I, I feel like we we talked in in the last well two episodes ago. Mm. We're not filming these episodes back to back. Sure, two not. episodes ago, we talked about Waltz of Bashir yep. and its impact in using animation um, to tell a very adult story, mm-hmm. and this film. Is I, I think, no. This this film is one hundred percent Pixar's first adult film. This is the first film where Pixar said, "We realize we're filming adult movies. We're, we're creating movies that you know children would appreciate. There, there's a lot of humor there that that children love. Laguini trying to cook for the first time while Remy's in control. Of well, the I mean, me, they, my kids have seen it a million times. Is nothing. They all. I mean, they love the whole movie, but they always laugh at like. Uh, the ratatouille part when he's like Linguini is like it sounds like rat patootie. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it's like that's a very kid thing, but it's also he's drunk when he says it. Yeah, and that but that entire film is building to that monologue in the sense that adults would realize that you have that moment in art, and that this is what strikes me about this movie. Yeah, you have oh, you yeah. have that moment that like, that's the important thing about art in any form, whether it be cooking, whether it be literature, music, film, video gaming. Mm-hmm. You have that moment that, that strikes back to a, to a memory, and and that scene, so uh, that scene, that's that what scene, we're fucking doing here, Mario. Yeah, that scene is not, not kind of like, punctuated by 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 um, foreshadowing. No, that it's, scene is is magic. You know, like like ego is presented as this like otherworldly figure. Um, 
and then he takes this he has that first day for Ratatouille and he sees the child again and his mother and that fucking ruins you you know I mean I mean if I mean it, 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 it didn't have much of an effect on me but like that's a like has somebody whose mother who I very much love is still alive <laughs> you know but I can imagine like at Ego's age like his mother's gone and but it, he, he has that memory and that just like but it's great. that has no effect no. on a child but that scene has every effect on the parent or grandparent who's taking their children to see that and that's the first time Pixar really I mean Finding Nemo Incredibles kind of like touched on that but Ratatouille I would say is the first movie that is truly their first adult film that says like hey we're making movie we're well, making animated films for everyone and so think consider like the juxtaposition of some of those other Pixar movies with that ending scene where nothing is really said. So there's a flashback, but it's not a deep flashback, and it's not a flashback to even a significant moment. It's just a flashback of Ego as a kid seemingly eating a dinner that he's eaten a lot of times before. Um, nothing happens. Traumatic. It's not no. a traumatic experience. It's literally him sitting at a counter eating food that his mother just made for him. And then it but flashes. But the animation of that moment. Right, but then it goes back to his face, and he doesn't say anything. He just eats it. And with this big smile on his face, and then he asks to see, talk to the chef, and then he doesn't say anything until the review. And it's just, I can't imagine another, another movie. And I don't think even think Pixar's well, done it. it Pixar's, does, done, does, Pixar's done it a couple of more times. He does in like say Toy he does, Story and stuff. It does say a lot. It does say a lot, though. No, no, but, it doesn't, but lot, it doesn't say it. It, it doesn't, says no. it, but it doesn't. But I think it consider, shows it. It shows it. But consider it something like shows, Finding Nemo. Or, it shows, but doesn't say. It shows it right. in the fact that, like, Previously, ego's been shown to be this very of the moment annoyed man. Yep. And the fact that he sits there for we can only assume three or four hours. Hours, just yeah. With his bottle of wine, patiently waiting. You know. And it obviously had, and that's the effect it had on him. Then is compounded every time they show him sitting there as the restaurant empties, and show how Remy cooks it and you know with him with the review going on it's it's not something that Pixar would have done beforehand and it's something they've done only sparingly since and and the entire monologue delivered by and fucking this, perfect this, I this, mean this, this movie okay so what's great about talking about Ratatouille right now talking about Sorry to Bother You before is Pat Oswalt's voiceover ability that guy does not who them, then that came out of nowhere yeah yeah, yeah. That guy does not get enough recognition, but like, nope. like the fact of his voiceover in that scene of just saying like, you know, Anton sat there quietly. He asked, he said nothing, but asked a few questions, mm-hmm. and like it's it's a it's a decently well written scene. But the way like as like Oswald Oswald delivers those those lines, mm-hmm. you know, you know, says a lot for for a family movie. Says a lot for a child's movie, and the fact that he's like taking it all in, mm-hmm. like the fact that. It was made by a bunch of rats. The, the fantastical nature of it doesn't fucking matter at all. No, it's it's and all that erased. matters. Yeah, all that matters was he had this experience, and that's that is the the importance of this movie. Sure. This movie is just all about the experience. Well, I mean, I think as a as a, um... I mean, I think I think it's a lot more as like you being as a father, maybe, perhaps, or I think it. I appreciate this movie a lot as I, I love the fact that my kids love this movie um, for 
now I'm sure for very Tom. Tom is a father too. I got some, I got some kids. They're, um, pretty, they're pretty great kids. I got it. They do not have kids. <laughs> um, they appreciate it for all of its surface reasons. You know, it's funny. It's yeah. It's exceptional to look at. Um, you know, the oh, rats are cute. The rats are cool. I mean, I mean, I think I think this is Pixar's best looking movie. I think so. And it's, even in terms of uh, like art, after all these in years, terms of like art directions. Yeah. No, in terms of art direction, like this is yeah. by far um, Pixar's best looking movie. And then it just it's so it's about so I, I love it because of you know just how great it is. As uh, as a as a uh, you know family movie, a, a, you know, for me, for them, blah blah blah. But I also love it as a testament to as a musician, as an as an artist, and I'll say that loosely, everybody. Um, it's it's about like creating and what it means to be inspired and what it means to have an idea that you or a passion that you just got to get the fuck out, and if it means sitting on top of a guy's head and pulling his fucking hair so you can make some, you know, so you can do the thing that you were born to do, like, then that's what you got to do. And if it means, if it means having your restaurant shut down because you decided not to eat the health inspector, you know what I mean? Because in showing ego, the fact that, you know, rats cook this meal, you know, as just, you know, this is me. It's almost kind of like dropping, like the gauntlet or the mic. I don't know where we are in the culture now. Are we dropping something different now? You know what I mean? The, the line in the stand, the, the infinity, infinity gauntlet, gauntlet with the full infinity stones in it. Um, and saying like, this is fucking me. This is what's, this is what I'm doing. I was, I'm a rat, but I was born to do this. Um, well, it always brings which up, is it just, always, I mean, I guess it brings up that great, like thought question of as a creator, would you rather, you know, have people know your work and it be mediocre, or would you rather have nobody know your work and it be like Beowulf? I mean, I believe that's one of the big thought questions. Well, I think that's interesting. I mean, and that's kind of brought up in this movie too, when Brian, you know, Remy's father is kind of like, "This is what they do to the rats," and he shows oh, that exterminator did, thing, and that you know, that's just all hanging rats. Gorgeously framed scene. By sure. The way. Oh my god. Well, uh, you know, Pixar movies love death a lot. But this movie leans into it. Well, and the fact that the rats don't matter, I think it's one of the interesting things that Pixar has kind of not done a lot of times is that everything that they try to kill in this in their movies really matters a lot, mm-hmm. whether or not it's toys, or um, you know, fish parents, or you know, a grandmother, cars, or cars. <laughs> fuck, <laughs> the, fuck the cars. Hold on a second. I, I have don't mention cars, and I did it. Put an exclamation point next to it. I did. Um, I put a little check mark. But this is just like, oh, yeah, the rats. Like, they just kill rats all the time in here. But the fact that Remy's just kind of, and I don't want this to sound like overly cliche or weirdly emotional, but like the fact that Remy's just like, yeah, okay, but I got to cook food. Yeah. No, I got to cook it. He has a greater calling. He's got to be, you know, he's got his friends and stuff like that, but he's still just kind of, the main thing I took away from it is like, I got to cook. I'm a cook. And if I have to be aligned with people to cook, then I got to be aligned with people to cook. There's nothing like, you know, I can't cook here. You people no, exactly. eat garbage. Um, no, and that's and that's definitely yeah. 100% like, like, I think a lot of what Ratatouille says is people out of the world. Like, Weenie's out of his world. I mean, he he's not a good cook, but he doesn't feel in place. 
uh, Colette doesn't feel in place. Nobody feels necessarily in place. An excellent Janine Garofalo, by the way. No, which wow. I didn't even know it was Janine Garofalo for the yeah, longest no, I, time. I looked it up. Like I was like, did they like ADR Janine Garofalo? Like I don't think so. She was. I mean, everyone. It makes me reevaluate everything I thought about Janine Garofalo. <laughs> Why you just think she was no, good the truth about cats and dogs? No, which is which is saying a lot about me. <laughs> but but no, like like I this this movie is everyone's it's, out of place. It's something Skin, else. Like even the villains are up. Like, even the villains Skinner Anthony Go for being a misunderstood villain. Like like they have their own motivations, but they're earned. Right. Like everyone is a human character, and I think this was I think this has a nice spot on your list. Because before then, even the sympathetic villains, such as you know, Jason Lee Syndrome in Incredibles, trying to be kind of like a somewhat yeah, sympathetic yeah, yeah, yeah. villain, they they still seem otherworldly. Something that I a conversation I had with myself was whether or not to put Wally or this on my list, but I picked this because it does it doesn't ever sink to the Wally level. Where Wally ends with like the very hysterical ending of all the fat people being fat and like racing around their space station. And, oh no, Wally is one hundred percent. It ends bad. Wally ends very badly. Instead of kind of, I mean, I I only have a one Pixar movie. On there my you list. go. That's fine. Um, and I, I would agree. <clears throat> Wally's Wally. Um, I think Wally's fantastic up until the point where they get into space, and then it's the worst. Well, I think I think this would be a good 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 point to end on. On the, in this part of the discussion is 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 a discussion on Pixar. Yeah, I mean, me and you are both big animated film fans. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be a lot of discussion on animated film coming up. Yup, of various films. I mean, we already had this conversation on Walt's Best Year, yep. which is 100 percent not unusual animated film. But it's animated. It's animated. Nothing, you know. And I think the culture right now definitely says that Pixar is is the the end all be all in in terms of the popular culture of animated mm-hmm. film. I, I don't think I agree with that. I don't either, all. because I think they've made a lot of mistakes for all of their good things that they've done. I think they they've do, made a they lot do, of they do a ton terrible of, They movies. do a ton of great work. I mean... But I'm not like a Finding Nemo person. No, but I, Finding... I find well, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory just grating and... Like, for whatever... I can't even get past what they what qualities they have as movies that people really like about them. I just find them so annoying, I can't even handle it. Like, a movie like Finding Dory is, I think, capitalizing on the success of Finding Nemo. But I think Finding Nemo works as a, as a child's film, as a children's film. May, I guess. I don't know. I was, I was so annoyed by it, I couldn't even um, process it. The Toy Story series never spoke to me, but I can, I get see, I can see how Toy Story works. I can see The ending the same, of Toy Story 3 is very sad. It doesn't work for me. Um, I was 26 years old when it came out. yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that Pixar relates looks for moments too much mm-hmm. um, in the sense that that's a good point in the sense that they're trying to make animated films for adults and children at the same time but they think that they're making they think that the moments for adults are going to be moments this is my problem and why something like Up doesn't will not show up on my list. Nope. Up has a fucking fantastic opening eight minutes. I mean, anybody that denies that those eight minutes don't punch them in the stomach no. is, is lying. Yeah. Anybody that denies that the uh, Adventures to Come scene 
I mean, I fucking lost my shit and felt like I was going to be forever alone yep. when the Adventures to Come scene pops <laughs> up. No, no, that's, that's like a single man. When he sees when he sees Adventures to Come, mm-hmm. I mean, I still, when I want to like wallow in self-pity, that I watch that scene. Hopefully that's not that often. <laughs> not that often, but like when I want to. Okay, good. Everyone wants to wallow in self-pity. Let's admit this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, every so often, come on. I watch The Last Kiss, too, which is like, <laughs> when you wallow in self-pity, watch a Zach Braff movie. Oh, Jesus. Oh, dear. Yeah. But that point and like Wally definitely have hallmarks of moments where like they, they were making it for the adult audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that this movie and a few others, like Ratatouille and a few others everyone mentioned in the future, do not do that. They They... They treat both audiences equal. There, they're both yeah. a child, not a child's film. They're both they're a family movie overall. They're just so, films. I mean, yeah, I think films. ultimately that ultimately. work that work both for children and adults. Yeah, because because the the moments where where you see the rats hanging in the uh, the windows the window or the display window are are horrific to both children and adults, mm-hmm. and the scenes where Remy is like hoping to become a success are work work overall and and that doesn't need to be pointed out no and that's and they also it also doesn't brad bird didn't feel the need to support any of that stuff with a really lazy hysterical ending oh no um the ending just just happened just kind of let it go yeah you know i mean like the most hysterical thing is that the rats cook food yeah, that's not even that funny. And that, it's funny for a kid, but like it's. But just, the idea it's, that like kind of happened for an I, adult. I mean, again, I, I well, I guess we'll end with this. I just think it's amazing that in that last scene where Remy's yelling at them how to cook food, he just says, "Watch it on the salt." Yep. So one of the stakes is that one of the rats, <laughs> one of the rats might make somebody's food too salty. No, exactly. But they, I mean, but it's it presented in such a way that it seems like real stakes. Like, what is the result, I guess, of the food being too salty? And, and, and like, like you said, the end. Like, when you're a kid, stakes always seem high. Like, every stake seems high. Mm-hmm. As a child, I thought, like, disappointing my parents in the smallest way was high. And that's what Ratatouille does well. Like, so many other Pixar films kind of, like, focus in this, like, world-ending catastrophe. Thing. And, like, like we, look, we look to modern, like, Marvel movies in that they, they have too high of a stakes and when when you're a child and like when i was a child like the smallest stakes still matter and yep. as an adult the smallest stakes still matter and that's what makes pixar that what makes not pixar that's what makes ratatouille great is the fact that small stakes that work as both an adult and the fact that you can fail in your career and as a child and they can fail as a function of what you want to be mm-hmm. Okay, so we're back. Uh, that was my 99. Um, so let's go to Mario's. My number 99 is 2012's Moonrise Kingdom, written and directed by Wes Anderson, uh, starring Jared Gilman playing Sam, has a star-crossed lover with Karen Haywood playing Susie. Um, the reason I, I put this on my list, I'm a really big Wes Anderson fan. 
uh, just from an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's very much kind of a esoteric sort of director, a very kind of kitschy director, as as he's known to be. Um, a couple of his films appear higher on my list. Actually, only one of his films appears higher on my list. I got one higher on my list, too. Yeah. I really enjoy Moonrise Kingdom because while I appreciate his his approach to the aesthetic um, that that he's kind of crafted into his his own style, mm-hmm. um, you know, it started from his various earliest films, from Bottle Rocket. Moonrise Kingdom is the last movie to me where that aesthetic meets an actual kind of heartfelt story. Mm. Um, I think I agree with you. Everything since then, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, I think is, is Fantastic Mr. Fox after the, maybe Fantastic it's just right, Mr. Fox right, before. Right, before, right before yep. this, but like. I Love Dogs, both of those movies just don't do anything for me. And I think even before then, something like Darjeeling Limited, which I find fun, it doesn't really have that kind of attachment that he has to his earlier films, like yeah. Life Aquatic or Ronald Tannenbaum's. And I think Moonrise Kingdom's last film, for me, where it actually felt like he was actually telling a tale and, and crafting his actors in a way to, to, t- to weave a story instead of to paint a picture. Yeah, this is not my favorite movie, but... Um, I agree. It is the last movie he made that isn't completely static. Mm-hmm. Um, where you know, he does his famous Wes Anderson shots of just somebody's face, you know, saying something in a completely deadpan manner. Um, but you're right. This movie is attached to to some kind of a heartfelt, you know, passionate story. Where the yeah, other ones I... are just kind of um, you know stories built around an aesthetic idea. And I think. What happened, especially with Isle of Dogs and Grand Budapest Hotel, is a lot of his stories kind of deal with that childhood wonder. Mm-hmm. Both of those films, though, kind of create children as caricatures. And Moonrise Kingdom does that in a lot of ways as well. But it's the last one that actually feels like you can kind of see some remnant of a child in, in it, a child telling that story. And yeah. Of course, like any other Wes Anderson child, they act like adults. Um, in many ways, their dialogue is stilted like an adult's. Um, they don't necessarily sound like an actual child. So it was the last film that kind of felt like that, that, that approach to childhood wonder. Another big thing for me is, is I've always been a big fan of Bruce Willis. One of his movies appears way higher on my list. I'll let you guess which that one is. Bulletproof? Oh, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely Hudson Hawk. Oh, okay. Wait, no, it was <laughs> maybe, Bruce... maybe Last Boy Scout. Bulletproof. Last, last Boy Scout is the other Damon Wayans movie. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking he, about I don't the, think Adam, he's in the Yeah, he, oh, no, the, it's Adam, the Sandler Adam Sandler one. Adam Damon Wayans I really liked that one as a kid. I don't know why. Bulletproof? Yeah. No, I don't think I ever saw it. I just remember the cover. But Bruce Willis and and Bill Murray, who we've talked about earlier in, in our trial episode uh-huh. with Ghostbusters, I think this was the first film and maybe the last film I'd seen in a long time where either of them are actually trying. Mm. And that was a big thing for me because both of those actors kind of shaped my childhood. I loved Groundhog Day. We talked about it before. I yep. loved Ghostbusters. Bruce Willis movies yet to be unnamed. As we talked about with, you know, Glenn Gallagher and Ross, um, where we saw Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon and why I felt was the last roles before they became caricatures of themselves. This was the last film I think I really saw Bruce Willis and Bill Murray trying. And so it's kind of like a loss to me in that way, but it's but it's like that la- it's Moonrise Kingdom. I, I would agree with you, it's not not the best movie. It's 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 a gorgeous movie. I mean, that has a lot of those those mm-hmm. great set pieces, beautiful art direction, great cinematography. Um, but it kind of is that moment where, where three people I really appreciated kind of went off the cliff. Yeah. Well, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, I just watched it again, obviously, um, to, to do this podcast and, um, you're right about, I can't speak to Bruce Willis. I'm not, you know, as attuned to Bruce Willis's work, 
Um, but you're right about Bill Murray, 100%, in that he seemed to be phoning a lot. Like, even something that he was, like, starring in, like, St. Vincent or, you know, Lost in Translation people really like, but I never really liked Lost in Translation. You know, some of his um, Jarmouche stuff, like Dead Flowers, he seemed to be kind of in this... Uh, broken Flowers. Broken Flowers. He seemed to be in this kind of, you know, sad sack... Like old sad man rut. Yeah, and he kind of mumbles his way through a lot of the lines. And he's he kind of like he's a sad old man in this hangs too. Hangs his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, but he's the sad old man has a place. Oh, exactly. It has a context, and it's related to something that's actually happening in the movie, and not just you know. I mean, I think there's there's definitely two scenes that kind of you know he definitely is playing that sad sad character that he plays in other films, but I think there's two scenes that really kind of stand out to Bill Murray trying something. Um, there's a scene when he's in the car with. Captain Sharp, Bruce Willis's character, mm-hmm. and they're talking about you know Susie being missing, and the scene kind of transitions to the discussion of the the affair between Mrs. Bishop, you know Francis McDormand, Bill Murray's character's wife, mm-hmm. and Captain Sharp, and there's like this pause, when, and then this this moment where Bill Murray says like Why are we talking about this? And just this like expression of just like monumental anger and sadness and loss. Mm-hmm but being held back because he knows that something's more important going on. But he kind of, in the second scene, that he kind of allows those emotions to kind of overflow is when he says, laying in the two twin beds, you know, it's a beautiful frame shot, like obviously of the time that was typical yeah. for a married couple to be separate. But, you know, this is a very purposeful framing decision. And, you know, Mr. Bishop says, I would just wish the roof would fly away and I'd be sucked out. I'm sorry, Walt. It's not your fault. Which injuries are you apologizing for, specifically? Specifically? Whichever one still hurt. Half of those were self-inflicted. I hope the roof flies off and I get sucked up into space. You'll be better off without me. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Why? You know, and, and just the way he delivers that has so much brokenness in it that he doesn't typically have in those other kind of roles where he plays the melancholy depressed characters well and I think the thing I like about that performance and that character is that you kind of get a, an active glimpse as to why he's broken where in those other movies where he's the sad broken man he kind of starts the movie as a sad broken man so you just see him hitting this one note mm-hmm. through the whole thing and just kind of doing what he's doing but here he kind of goes up and down he has some angry moments and there's an element when you see that you're just like oh that's Bill Murray doing Bill Murray but he's actually added a lot of depth to this and it doesn't, character. It doesn't necessarily feel just like the Bill Murray you've come to know in the feels, past 15 it years. Feels it feels like an ac- a character, a right. character that's been crafted by Wes Anderson. Um, and speaking also of performances, uh, another two things that I really enjoyed was the fact that this was the first time in a while that Edward Norton, you know, playing Scoutmaster Ward, doing something new. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't, he was playing a very kind of, not, I don't want to say necessarily out there character, but playing a character who is just out of his element and, and this this like feeling of of wonder about everything and just being downtrodden but always trying to be peppy with something you didn't really see much at Edward Norton you see a little bit in the depth of Smoochie but 
you know, the, the Danny DeVito film that came out like 10 years earlier, yeah, but yeah, he yeah. kind of like, he kind of falls back into those Edward Norton cliches that were popular in the nineties of kind of like that really depressed, angry character. And this one, he's just always like a PBS character. He's like a Mr. Rogers and that's enjoyable. Yeah. Well, I mean, something I think is funny um, is that a lot of these character actors think that um, to play a different character, they really, they need to do a voice. Oh, so exactly. in, in you know Death to Smoochie, he's got that crazy, crazy voice. Here he's just an Ed Norton voice, but he's just playing a character. Yeah, he, I mean, I there's, there's a little figured, bit of like pep in his voice, but yeah, it's not but necessarily it's not, anything different. Right, and I think he's, I think in this movie, he kind of figured out that like, oh, I can just kind of be Ed Norton, and then just act. I don't have to be like this totally different guy. I, I don't have to change, you know, my whole demeanor or my voice or anything. I can just lay into a character and I mean you see a little bit of that coming out in Birdman too where he's not doing anything you know Di- obviously weird. Or weird he's just like acting the shit out of a part exactly. and I, I don't think he thought he could do that I think he thought he needed to be strange and odd and different when really all he wanted out of Ed Norton was to just act oh exactly and one final thing I really enjoy in terms of the performances is this is our first real introduction to Lucas Hedges yeah as Redford um, and you know, that guy's just been blowing the shit out of things lately. So it's it, from a performance standpoint, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable film. I think it's, it's the movie where, you know, Wes Anderson always kind of like crafted together those, those weird performances like Tilda Swinton and whatnot, um, in movies before then. But since then he's kind of gone overboard with that. And this is the first one where he's kind of crafting those independent actors like Bob Balaban, um, and those A-list actors and kind of like. It, it perfectly melds itself. And this is like the last film I think that, that is balanced. After that, he kind of falls into the fantastical and it just becomes kind of a joke unto itself. And this is, it's kind of unfortunate because he's still, a, he's still a, a good writer. Yeah. He's a great director. He has, he has a great vision, but he's, he's kind of like needs a revitalization. Well, it's like a self, I mean, everything after this, I think is like a parody of itself. Um, and I think an interesting, you know, fact of this movie is that um and something that one of the things i actually really enjoyed about this movie and i didn't really like this movie that much as i've already said um is that sam is you know he's trying to be very grown up yeah you know when him and Susie first run away he's trying to be very grown up and he's trying to tell her all these things um but he's just being really silly about everything you know what i mean oh he's, yeah like he's talking hoisting. about the rock the rock scene about right putting rocks in your mouth so you won't be thirsty. And, you know, when he hoists all their gear up like the rock, but it takes him like, you know, half a second to run up the other side of the big rock. Oh, exactly. um, you know, there's all this, this just like pretend play. And that's why I appreciate, which is really I nice. appreciate too, the fact that like the Sam and Susie relationship is obviously the main focus of the story. It, it's, it's the main driving narrative, but it's silly. You know, the, their romance doesn't mean anything. They're two kids, you know, coming, one's coming from a, completely broken background the other one's you know dissatisfied in life and has some temperament issues but that's kind of held up by this framework of the serious issues going on between mr and mrs bishop i mean this is a serious you know marital strife going on that's Mm -hmm. kind of being played still for jokes but it is something serious and it gives you it's a nice balance between a fantastical goofy relationship between two kids and these two broken characters in Mr. and Mrs. Bishop who have just been beaten down by the relationship, being down by their work. They're both dissatisfied attorneys. Yeah. And 
it's nice to to frame those two in that kind of image. And I just don't think since then Wes Anderson has been able to do that. It's just everything to him is is this wonderland, this this kind of fantastical fairy tale. And that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, fairy tale is, a, is an interesting word for it, and especially because you know she reads all those those fairy tale books. Exactly. Um, you know that I think that they both think that they're living in some kind mm-hmm. of a fairy tale, and um, they're clearly not. Uh, and I don't know. Do they get to see that by the end of the movie that they're not living in a fairy tale, or does their fairy tale persist? I mean, I, I'd say for for the children. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'd say I'd say definitely. There's. I mean, he's dressed in the police captain's uniform. He's still being a kid but that's that's appropriate you know they're they are both still kids at right? in the story they're maybe 14 at oldest mm-hmm. you know there's 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 still time to grow um and at the same time you know they, they seem a little more centered and the relationship between mr and mrs bishop at the end also seems a little more centered seems mm-hmm. a little like like they've resolved their issues and that's once again that nice framing in the fact that as those real issues resolve themselves, at least for Susie's case, and you know, the fact that Captain Sharp is now taking care of Sam, these kind of like children's cases where everything is taken to the extreme because you're your children, yeah. you know, you take everything to the extreme, you magnify everything. Their situations, while still goofy, still childlike, are a little more grounded and centered. And that's that's an enjoyable kind of characteristic of the film. Well, I think something, you know, as we're talking about this and I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm making a very, I'm thinking about it face as Mario's talking. Um, it's a lot of squinting. There, yeah, it is a lot of squinting and just kind of staring at the wall. Um, there's kind of there's an interesting like trifecta of grown up child relationships um, that you know someone could write a paper analyze and. Um, oh, I'm sure somebody has. I'm sure somebody has too. There's a brown paper there just floating <laughs> around. As the bishop with like with the bishops and their kids, specifically Susie, and then with um, Bruce Willis's character uh, Captain Sharp. Sharp yeah. And Sam, inevitably, and then um, uh, Scoutmaster Ward and his, you know, and the Scouts. Like, and how each of them are trying to kind of bring, are trying to, to lay some kind of life lesson on these people, or are trying to bring them up. And obviously, Bruce, uh, or Captain Sharp doesn't have a lot of time with Sam, but when he is, when Sam is in, is in his care at one point in the movie, you know, he gives him some sausage, but a grilled cheese and sausages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A couple of glasses of beer, um, yeah. and he gives Sam his bed while he lays on the floor. Um, it's the things that these people are willing to do for these kids. Exactly. Um, and so uh, yeah, a, that's framed, a, that's framework by the end where they're hanging off the church steeple, and yeah, you know, Sharp says, "Don't let go of Sam and Susie." You know, like that he's actually there to take care of them. That's what they're looking for. They're, they're they've been neglected. These kids, you know, Susie's been neglected because of the parents' issues. Um, and it's I think a, they sort of have, have that yeah. comfort at the end. And it doesn't make me like this movie anymore because... I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even the biggest fan right, of it. Right, it just, just, it it just speaks of, to me in the fact that it was a director I loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the last time he's, he's doing something. Well, and I think that's kind of what I was going to say is that we, you know, we kind of talked to the idea of, of world building before in, in the episode. Um, you either buy this... You either buy the aesthetic world that he's building or you don't. And I didn't really respond to like, and I don't always respond. I most of the time oh, don't no. respond to Wes Anderson's Oh, no, I, I'd say Ratatouille but, does a much better job of, yeah. of building a world. Sorry to bother sorry you. Too. Also does does a great job of, you know, if anything, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan, sorry to bother you, but if anything, it, it makes you believe that world's real. And exactly. this world here doesn't necessarily feel real. Right. But I, don't th- I but, think the characters feel real. Right, and I think the emotions are real, which I think is, was, is very 
absent in Grand Budapest no, Hotel. Actually. And I didn't see Isle of Dogs, but I imagine with the way that well, it's Grand- constructed, it's probably it's probably very dry. Oh, like exactly. Grand well, Grand Budapest Hotel. Hotel and Isle of Dogs both have to raise the stakes by ten times, like a thousand times. Grand Budapest Hotel has overtures of, of genocide. Isle of Dogs kind of does the same thing, or does a, you know, uh, fa- like like hallmarks of fascism, and like you don't necessarily need to do that. I think it's you know you don't need to raise the stakes that much to to create can, a world. But you can raise the stakes, and you can write a movie that has some emotional resonance. Exactly. And I know, and neither. I mean, I'm, I can't say neither of those movies. Grand Budapest Hotel definitely doesn't. And but regardless of whether or not Moonrise Kingdom works for you, it clearly has an emotional core mm. um which you know some of his movies try to avoid um and then some of them just don't have yeah at all so you know i don't know does bottle rocket have an emotional core i haven't oh, seen no. that movie bottle in rocket's like 20 just, years bottle rocket's just fun i think but but you know you know movies that follow like rushmore and royal tandem mobs definitely do they do have um, an emotional core yeah not the biggest life aquatic fan but that's a discussion no, no, no. for another time i don't think it actually is because i don't think that's on your list it definitely isn't on my list. That was, I mean, because I was, you know, I'm a big Royal Tenenbaums fan, and obviously, like, Quadrix the movie after that. And I remember going to see that movie in theaters and just kind of being crestfallen. Yeah. Like, oh, no, we're same. just gonna do, we're just gonna do this. Yeah, it's with it's just, forever now. With, it kind of fails in with in Kate Blanchett, and also, yeah, that's good. One little fun piece of trivia before we wrap up, though. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that I liked. And okay. I, I was read, reading this while, while doing our, our research because. Uh, fucking try on this we know podcast. how to use a computer yeah barely um so redford you know lucas hedges character uh-huh. is the biggest enemy of sam he beats sam in the end because he's banging Susie's actress karen hayward uh in manchester by the sea so fuck you sam oh yeah yeah i was like <laughs> redford wins no nicolette pointed that out to me too no did she Which, well we were watching Nicolette, nicolette's his wife my wife oh i think i mentioned that in a previous episode well I people remember people i i forgot my wife. i i often i often forget their name and i i've met her multiple times um yeah she was looking up the movie and she's like oh they were both in manchester by the sea and i was like what really it's yeah. weird there needs to be more child actors in yeah. the world that we can't just can't find somebody else we're just recycling these people well, over and over and over it's again. like five of them but, well, I, but lucas hedges was in everything last year he was in like no, three yeah. movies well him and timothy uh Chamelet, who then they often cross paths like in the same movie that's true that's yeah. true so yeah that's my number 99 moonrise kingdom a very flawed movie but i it's something that spoke to me and the fact that it's uh, two actors and a director who i all love kind of the last film they did before uh kind of fell off a cliff for me yeah and if it, is there's i feel like is there a cliff in this movie that's oh, there's, there's that's a church there's a church steeple that they're hanging off right of, right right so. So in I guess in this in this case, Bruce Willis just let go. <laughs> so I think that's all right. It for I think that's movie. it. Um, thank you for listening. Um, this is Pivotal Film. Go. Be sure to check us out at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail and pivotalfilm.com. We're now also going to be on Stitcher, iTunes, yeah. and your favorite podcast app. Don't forget if you listen to us on iTunes, uh, rate us. I guess that makes something that's important. Uh, that makes me reason. feel dirty to say yeah. rate us. But. I mean, you can rate us really badly. I'm not telling you how to rate us. I'm not saying like give us, you know, five stars. I don't know. How I don't know works. what the implications are of the rating system. So yeah, who knows? Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Go um, see a movie uh, and drink a beer. Talk about it. It's a little bit.